This is a new ground for us as far as I'm concerned. Um, this is a, the second installment of a two-part series on the nature and the meaning of baptism and the sign of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And last week, Kip taught the first half, and I get to do the follow-up. Kip suggested that I bring a mop and a bucket, um, but I don't presume to do that this morning. He did refer to himself, by the way, as the B team, and I'm assuming that he would include me in that category as well, right? Um, fair enough, I'm content thereby. But it does remind me of when I was a kid, I had a newspaper clipping taped to the wall by my bed. And it was a photograph from the Tribune or the Sun-Times. And on one half of the picture was the great Willie Mays, the first five-tool ball player, the 500 and some odd or maybe more home runs. And on the other side of the picture was the great Ernie Banks, shortstop for the Cubs, two-time MVP, 500 and some odd home runs. But in the middle between them was a round little man named Al Spangler. Al Spangler was a sometime journeyman utility player for the Chicago Cubs, and he had one arm around Willie Mays and the other arm around Ernie Banks, and the caption underneath said, between the three of us, we've hit over a thousand home runs. <laughs> Folks, you're looking at Al Spangler this morning, all right? I want to begin with something that's dangerous, because it's always dangerous. And that is, I want to summarize Kip's message from last week. And if I leave out something, my default is, this is what I heard. It may not be what he actually said. The title of his message was, The Mark and the Meal of the New Covenant Community. And it's difficult to sum that up especially when we're speaking of a passionate and foundationally ordered exposition of the nature and the purpose and the gift that is baptism. But nonetheless, here goes. One, the redeemed are a necessarily exclusive group, and so it is for the baptized. We are baptized into fraternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, we plead his righteousness and his alone at the bar of heavenly justice. And whether our company be large or small, we stand on that ground and by the grace of God, we will not be moved. Second, baptism is a truth that straddles the church universal as well as the church local. To signify our position in Christ broadly for all times and in all places with all believers is part of what it means to be baptized. But the pattern in scripture is that baptism signifies the adding to and the acting as one with the local body of believers to which, like it or not folks, we are attached at the hip. He preached from Acts 2, 36-47 and it illustrates a particular sequence in the marching orders of the redeemed. And that order, if you remember, because it was on the, the screen, it includes repentance, belief, baptism, being added to, acting as one, communion, or celebrating the meal of new covenant community. The order is particular. 
It ought not to be scrambled. And every step is an unfolding gift, each one made more potent in its implications by the others upon which it builds. And finally, we must never separate the peanut butter from the jelly. The clear implication is that just as a peanut butter sandwich without jelly loses all of its existential meaning, so it is that faith, saving faith, must not and indeed cannot be separated from the gift and the sign that is baptism, nor from the celebration that is the communion meal. And though I I would not differ or argue with Kip at all about the foundational principle or the philosophy of a peanut butter sandwich, I do have a couple of observations about the logistical practice of a peanut butter sandwich. For example, and all you kids know this already, you leave the heel in the bread bag for someone else, (laughs) right? And you don't let your mom turn the heel upside down pretending it's not the heel anymore. And you know about that as well. The other thing is, leave the raspberry seeds out of the jelly, please. But here's the point, and there is a significant point here. The practice, the actual practice of a peanut butter sandwich matters. And what I intend to do this morning, and pray for me, if you will, toward this end, I want to walk through Scripture and make some observations about the practice of baptism and communion in the local church, particularly in the book of Acts. I want us to see what they look like on the ground. My desire is that we will collectively assemble some tools along the way that will help us to be wise and discerning about how to best practice these new covenant marks and to use them well for God's glory and our good. So, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And it's page 909 in the Pew Bible. And there's going to be some rustling of, of pages this morning, I hope. And I had to make a decision. I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture this morning. Because the story itself, the stories, will make their own point with their own potent connections. Here's what Peter says in Acts 21. And the context here is that he's, they're trying to figure out how to replace Judas. What would be the measuring stick of the man that they would want to take that 12th slot? He says this, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So it's interesting, isn't it, to read how it is that Peter qualifies the requirement. The replacement for Judas must have accompanied them from beginning to end, from John's baptism or Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, to right up to his bodily resurrection and ascension. Peter selects these two highly specific points of reference. There's no confusion or ambiguity here. He selects the baptism of Jesus by John as the beginning mark of his public ministry. And this, by the way, doesn't suggest that Jesus was sitting around not doing anything prior to that point. What it does suggest is that with his baptism, Jesus was putting on the mantle of public ministry. And that's the the perception of Peter. So that's the first observation. Baptism matters. 
For many of us, it's our baptism that has become the line of demarcation, the point at which there was a before and there is an after. It's our Rubicon, uh, an insignificant stream in northern Italy, and Julius Caesar in, a, in B.C. 49 said once he crosses that stream, he will be marked forever, as, branded as violating the laws of the Roman Senate. And you know his famous words, right? When he said, the die is cast. And so it was, is what Peter was suggesting here when he identified the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I want you to turn over to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. I'm going to read all the way through to verse 24, and it's on page 916 in your pew Bible. And by the way, I thought about just giving you a summary of each of these little vignettes but in my own um, prayerful thinking on it it, it, it just sucked some of the life out of the observations. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great, and they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he continued with Philip. And after seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone upon whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. The first observation is that the gospel wins. Falsehood cannot stand ultimately in the light of the beam of steady, consistently proclaimed truth. The truth of the gospel will rise to the top. Second, the baptism of Simon tells us a couple of interesting things. Number one, we can mess it up. We can get it wrong. And because that is so, we have to be careful. And why is that? It's because the imprimatur of, of 
Baptism gave Simon the leverage to exert an undue, unhealthy influence on the young and naive church. To be wrongly baptized is no baptism at all. And it will, in the end, lead to uncertainty, fear, and doubt, to say nothing of judgment. In fact, it's the very opposite of the assurance that is built into the design of baptism. You'll notice also, through all the examples I'm going to read, the linkage between the Holy Spirit and baptism. They're like, wherever one is in the room, the other one is not far behind. The Holy Spirit accompanies and indeed precedes authentic baptism, and they go together like peanut butter and jelly. But it's hard to tell if the Holy Spirit is present, isn't it? You don't, it's not a light bulb going off on top of a person's head. That's the reason that we baptize carefully, and that where we can, we allow time to pass so that genuine heart change can be assessed. That's one of the, one of the critical ingredients of anybody who's involved in children's ministry. You become part of that assessment. And we do that not as some kind of hoop to jump through or some sort of reason to withhold a blessing, but as a kindness to the person seeking baptism, as well as a protection of the church. Folks, according to Simon, baptism was like a magic charm. It was the price of admission. It's not magic. It does not provide a secret power, and it does not provide cover for falsehood. Are you still with me? Turn to Acts chapter 8, reading from verse 26 through 39. This is the story that you are all familiar with, or I assume that most of you are. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he replied, how can I? unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this, his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. Some simple and obvious observations. First, 
there is eagerness on the part of the person looking to be baptized, right? It's, uh, you, you can taste it on the page. Second, there is urgency. What prevents me? Third, there is the hard work of teaching toward understanding in order that belief may be anchored in the scriptures. And fourth, and this is so obvious it, it didn't even hit me until after I read it through several times. Here as elsewhere, there is always a person that does the baptizing. We do not appropriate it for ourselves. It is blessedly passive in the sense that it's received, not grasped. There's a wonderful movie, by the way, called The Apostle with Robert Duvall in which he plays the part of a charismatic preacher who essentially baptizes himself. And the awkwardness of it is strange and shocking to see because it is so contrary to what Scripture teaches. It is not so much that we somehow appropriate or identify with Christ in baptism. Rather, it is us who are identified by him to be brought to him. It's no small mercy that this man was able to return to Ethiopia as a baptized believer who was now able to joyfully proclaim good news to his countrymen and being baptized would not have been prevented from baptizing others. And who else was going to do it, by the way? Next, notice the ordinary nature of the element. This is a desert place. It's just a pool of water, apparently, by the side of the road. It seems ordinary in every sense. If it is sanctified in some way, by the, it's done so by the working of God, not by some ritual of men. The elements of nature take on a conformity to the will and the grace of God. And we see this all over the place in Scripture, don't we? Bread, water, fire, a donkey, <laughs> lily, hyssop, wheat, grapes, stones, lamps, baskets, and fish. The common ingredients of nature become sanctified and holy as they conform to the will of God. And finally, the notice that the scene concludes with clear and unrestrained joicing, so our baptisms ought ever to be. And there's a whole ton of other observations we can make that uh, we're just going to move right on. Turn to Acts chapter 10, 44 through 48. This is page 919 in your pew Bible. It's the baptism of the first Gentile. While Peter was saying these things, by the way, the Ethiopian eunuch is not the first Gentile, as he is in all likelihood a proselyte and a convert to the Jewish faith. After all, he went to the temple to worship and was returning. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, Acts 11, 15 through 18, page 920, you can flip over there, probably was just one page. 
Oh, it is just a page over. This is Peter retelling the story to the church in Jerusalem. He says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Some observations. First of all, the pattern of association with the Holy Spirit and baptism is quite clear. And if you read this carefully, it's clear that the Holy Spirit, the pattern is that it is given upon believing and before baptism. The connection is what Peter is focusing on here. Number one, baptism breaks all cultural barriers. It is not a respecter of persons. It is available to all who are drawn to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a short story. My father was an accountant by trade, had a side job when I was a kid. He kept the books at the River Forest Golf Club, and I'm about to offend most golfers here, so just prepare yourself. And uh, he told me once about the initiation requirements to become a member at the River Forest Golf Club. You filled out an application and you turned it in. Then all the membership was assembled and each member was given a black marble and a white marble and they held them in their hands with the fist closed. They passed a hat. You put your hand in the hat and you released whichever marble you chose. If at the end there were any black marbles in the hat, application rejected. What a beautiful system. <laughs> you could reject somebody without a reason and in complete righteous anonymity, right? Folks, that's not the gospel. It's bigger than us. And baptism is bigger than our prejudices and it outshines our best hopes. Why? Because it's not founded on our earthly pedigree, nor our righteousness, nor our accomplishments, nor our knowledge, nor our wisdom, or our travails, or our accumulated wisdom, or our spiritual fervor. It's grace upon grace given to the children of God as a gift and a sign, and that's why we rejoice in it. For the young, we rejoice in it. For the old, we rejoice in it even when it's a 13-year-old teenage boy. Right? Sorry, guys. And that's why our rejoicing may be unrestrained. Baptism can turn the church upside down. It is a big deal in what it signifies. Turn over to Acts 16, verse 13 through 15. This is the baptism of Lydia, and I'm going to follow it with the baptism of the Philippian jailer. Page 923, did I say that? And on the, boy, I love that sound. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I think it would be fair to read the last sentence as she would not take no for an answer. The first observation, I think, is the if you walked away with one observation, this is what, it, what I hope it would be. Baptism was generously given. It was not hoarded. Mike Ditka once said of George Callis, the owner of the Chicago Bears, famous for being tight-fisted, he said, Hallis throws nickels around as if they were manhole covers. Folks, the stewardship of this gospel is a generous stewardship, open to all, freely given, as it surely was for Paul, so it is for us, a joy and a gift that becomes sweeter day by day and life by life. Once again, there is a sense of urgency. It's almost as if Paul is, is seeing this church in an incubator and is get these people baptized. The other thing, it's accompanied by thoughtful attention to the content of the gospel. Who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart through the teaching, the faithful teaching of the Apostle Paul at the Riverside. And another observation, the gospel mercifully spreads from one baptized person to those that they love. It's a pattern that we see in our lives, and it's a pattern that we see in Scripture. Also, service to Christ will naturally follow and accompany baptism as naturally as a glass of cold milk follows a peanut butter sandwich. Finally, there is a church in Philippi before Paul leaves town. He stops back to see Lydia and the brothers. The reason that matters is that baptism is a gift of grace given not only to the individual but the church as well. The next one here, I have a note to myself to skip this part if, if time is short. But you know what? I think we're going to have plenty of time. It just depends when you want to go home. <laughs> Acts 16, 19-34, page 923. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once. This was a busy evening, folks. He and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Are you beginning to see the repeated connections? Do you see, first of all, the earnestness that accompanies and ought to accompany the path of baptism? Do you see the sense of urgency? Once again, do you see teaching toward understanding that is generous, timely, succinct, and sufficient in order to anchor sincere repentance and belief? 
And once again, do you see this connection? That there's a response. It's to rejoice and what? To serve. Note the simple clarity of the gospel faithfully presented to this Roman jailer. Grace upon grace. Turn to Acts 18, verses 24 through 27. Page 927 and 928 in your pew Bible. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. First observation. Everything's looking great for Apollos. He's competent in the Scriptures. He's eloquent in preaching. He is instructed in the way of the Lord. He's fervent in spirit. He's speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. What more could you want? Have your pastoral search committee just grab Apollos, right? What's wrong is that his baptism was flawed through incomplete understanding. He knew only the baptism of John. Second observation, note the way they handle it. In the context of the church, he was pulled aside, not out of a desire to take him down a peg or to rub his nose in his own error, but to simply explain, to teach him the way of God more accurately. And third, though it's not explicit, it would appear from the next chapter that we're about to read that he was likely baptized again. The word rebaptize is a is a is an awkward and misleading term because his first baptism was clearly not a sign of identity with the resurrected Christ. And here's where a word of caution may be in order. You don't take this story to suggest that we can go into the waters of baptism with some sense that we can simply get rebaptized if we need a do-over. As if we get some kind of a mulligan. That's dangerous and the risks are several. First of all, it's a dangerous misappropriation of the sign, first of all. It's also dangerous because it opens the new believer up to the reverberating darts of our accuser who would be quick to suggest that our baptism may be the response of a wavering heart to the very sign by which assurance and secure identity ought to rest. And folks, this is an area where the, where the wisdom and the experience of your brothers and sisters in Christ and your elders here can be of great help to you. And finally, note this, that in the protective shepherding presence of those wiser and more mature, perhaps he was encouraged, he was equipped, and he was sent in full possession of his giftedness to those who, as it says, through grace had believed. Look down the page and page 928. Is that the same page? It's Acts 19, verse 1 through 7. Yeah, same page. Well, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? There's a reason Paul asked the question, right? He's got his eyes wide open all the time. 
And they said, no, we've not even ever heard that there was a Holy Spirit. You've got to love the honesty of these, these uh, disciples, do you not? And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Some observations from this really interesting story. First, though it's a hard question perhaps, it's okay to ask one another clearly and directly, into what were you baptized? Second, it's fair, I think, to ask, what does this mean, this phrase, John's baptism? Paul makes it crystal clear, actually. They had received a baptism of repentance, pointing to one who is to come, but were ignorant of the one, this Jesus, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Third, once again, we can see that baptism can be wrongly conferred, wrongly relied upon. And fourth, if your baptism is in error, such that it is no baptism at all, this can be remedied, folks, according to Scripture. Praise God. Finally, they, through a proper, thoughtful, insightful teaching, were free to embrace the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's fair to say that their similarities with Apollos were somewhat superficial, as they were probably not believers, though disciples, yet the Lord opened their hearts too grace upon grace. Another note, the real root trouble with knowing only the baptism of John is this. To be utterly ignorant of the Holy Spirit is to be ignorant of resurrected life. Since the Holy Spirit is the helper given in power and grace after Jesus has been both resurrected and ascended, to sever the connection between baptism and resurrection life is way worse than separating the peanut butter and the jelly. It strips the symbols of their meaning, for baptism is fundamentally about the pounding realities of death and life. They're found in every echo of the ordinance, and we will see that they are absolutely fundamental to the other mark given to the church, the ordinance of communion, or as we like to call it, the Lord's Supper. Let's consider that mark for a minute, and you may take a deep breath as we're going to move to the consideration of the Lord's Supper based on 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read some Scripture, then we're going to talk about it a bit. 1 Corinthians 10, 15. These are, will be found on pages 957 to 959. 1 Corinthians 10, 15 to 17. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-22, we're moving over a little bit. But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You know, I can't figure out if Paul is speaking with sarcasm there 
or if he's acknowledging the fact that there will be divisions because you are not unified in one body in Christ. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. We're skipping a section here, and we're going to skip a paragraph going down to verse 27 through 33 of chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This valuable thing that we call the Lord's Supper is not out of reach. I have wondered if it's if it's dangerous to wrongly take of this, why do we pass it down the rows? Why do we make it so accessible? We wouldn't pass a loaded shotgun down the rows, right? The reason is because this, this ordinance is designed to be accessible. A quick, quick story. When I was a kid, my grandma had a china polar bear about the size of a big soup terrain. It was gorgeous. It was, it, just, it was just so beautiful. And we longed to touch it, to look at it. And my father would say, no, you keep your cotton picking mitts off of this thing. Um, you may not touch. You can stand back and gaze in awe, but you may not touch. Many years later, I brought my own kids to see to my grandma's house, and there was the polar bear still sitting on the bureau probably in the same place it had been for the last 15 years. And I instructed my children, guys, I escaped my childhood without breaking this thing, and I'm determined that you shall also. (laughs) And so we go inside, and one of my children, I won't um, name him, (laughs) looks at the polar bear and begins to reach his hand out, almost as if it's drawn and he has no more control over it than, than any child would have, reaching for a candy bar or something. And I, I stopped him. Da, 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 da. You, may, you may look, but don't touch him. My grandmother looked at me and said, what's going on here? And I said, Grandma, I lived my whole childhood in fear that I was going to be the one to break the polar bear, and I'm pretty well determined that it's not going to be one of my children. She said, well, for heaven's sakes. And she picks it up and places it in his arms. I fainted nearly. <laughs> I don't know whatever happened to the polar bear, Some other cousin broke it, (laughs) I like to think. But you know what the point is, right? The point is that this valuable thing that we call the Lord's Supper is not out of reach. It is well within reach, and so it must be. 
even though we know the dangers that attend its abuse. It was not hoarded. It's not secreted. It's not some sort of cultic rite. Like baptism, it is a simple ritual using common elements, but in a manner that is utterly different from any other thing that we are likely to experience in life. And this ordinance is entered into with the understanding that a body has been broken for us, that blood has been shed unto death, that we might have what? Life. Like baptism, it is a symbol of death turned on its head and is an emblem of genuine and free and eternal life for us. Like baptism, it can be corrupted, entered into wrongly, with significant and sobering consequences leading to judgment. And like baptism, it is a, it is a fundamentally and exclusively corporate celebration. It involves a coming together or an acting as one, to put it in the categories that Pastor Kip outlined for us last week. Like baptism, if wrongly entered... Communion will result in discipline from the Lord that may be hard to miss, principally, I think, the hardening and the wounding of an abused conscience. And finally, like baptism, it will be the mark of the church until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do well to separate this ordinance, to celebrate this ordinance often and rejoice with one another every single time that we do. Just a quick note about ritual and symbol. If these, are, if these ordinances are marks, are rituals, are those rituals filled with significance? It would sure seem like it. And is their meaning mainly symbolic? And if that is so, are we overemphasizing their importance? I thought it might be helpful to illustrate the importance of rituals with an example. When our daughter Noelle was commissioned into the military to the National Guard, we family and parents were allowed to come and so we watched it. It wasn't any big deal, really. It was a little room. with They served cake and Kool-Aid, I believe, afterward. So it wasn't really fancy, but there were speeches, and they were in their dress uniforms, and there were oaths taken. They swore to protect and defend uh, the Constitution of the U.S., among other things. And I don't remember much about it, except that I understood that behind that oath, there, there could potentially one day be a price to pay, Right? Uh, not a small price. But the most potent part of that ceremony was something that was not in the formal thing. And I, I actually asked Tom Ryan about this last week because they had what they called the silver dollar salute. The morning of the commissioning, my daughter came up to me and said, Dad, can I, can I borrow a silver dollar? And I happened to have a couple. And she was honest enough to say that I would not be getting it back. But here it is. There's a silver dollar. The idea is this. Once you become commissioned, the first enlisted soldier to salute you in your new rank would be given a silver dollar. And it was done in a particular way. You would somehow palm it, shake hands, and transfer it in that handshake. The, uh, the coin symbolically acknowledges the receipt of respect due the new rank and position. I tell the story because it's, it's near to my heart, of course, but also because it, fund, it is fundamentally emblematic of matters of life and death, and new rank and position speak of a new identity. And I also tell the story because it illustrates the real-time importance of ritual and symbol. Be assured that these rituals are not superfluous. They matter indeed, and so it is with the rituals of baptism and communion for the believer. Three questions as I conclude this morning. Consider the ordering. If you participate in the Lord's Supper but have not been baptized, can you see the possible incongruity in the incorrect ordering 
of the progression of new life in Christ. These are not easy one-size-fits-all prescriptions. But we ought to at least understand the connection between baptism and the Lord's Supper. Second, if your heart is not examined or if your heart is not in line with the remembrance and the celebration that form the foundation of this ordinance, you do well to let the bread and the cup pass. But let me ask you this. Do you routinely let it pass? Like Tevia said, it is no shame to be poor, but is no great honor either. It's not a place to pitch your tent, folks, and it will lead to a poverty for your soul. And remember that just like with baptism, we only bring one thing to the table of the Lord. Well, maybe two. We bring our sinful selves, right? And we bring a spirit-enabled surrender to the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Slain for us that we might have life. And finally, if the mark of baptism has sealed you into the body of Christ, and if you rejoice in the bread and the cup, knowing that your brothers and sisters are linked arm in arm with you in a greater fraternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, here's where we're going to take a sharp left turn. So hang on. Hang on to the door handle, right? Because here we go. What then hinders your membership in the local church? As cup follows bread and bread and cup follow baptism, so it is that membership in the local body of Christ follows as surely and as predictably and as logically as night follows day. And, you know, we don't mandate membership. Nobody's going to come knocking on your door, at least I don't think. Um, maybe we should. And we even acknowledge that it is a legitimately difficult step for some for a great many reasons. But we, your elders here at Grace, would have you receive that gift as a bond of your identity in Christ and with His church, that your celebration, your celebration, your service, and your giftedness might become more complete and less hindered day by day as we walk this Emmaus road together. Whew, thank you for your attention this morning. As I pray for us, would the instrumentalists and those serving communion come to the front? Father, when I think about these things, they, they, they speak of the beauty and the power and the identity of adoption. And what a mercy it is to our souls that we are given signs by which that identity is registered publicly among us. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word this morning. And may this celebration that we're about to participate in be one filled with joy, entered into with generous hearts, rejoicing in elements of death that promise new life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.